But, uh, but we're glad you joined us today, uh, and, and not just because we want to see how full uh, our building can get, but because we believe that we have the best news in the history of the entire, in the entire world, and we are unashamed about that news, and we believe that if you take that news to heart, the news of Jesus to heart, repent of your sin and choose to follow him every single day, that you will not only live fuller and richer and more substantial lives, but you will also inherit eternity with Jesus. That's why we do what we do here. And as we step into 2024, that really is, uh, that's really what we want our focus to be, right? I know Jeff came out here and he's like, town halls and, and uh, budgets and nominating committees and all and constitutional revisions and all that. And all that stuff is important. Like, I, I get it. It's important to the business side of the church to make sure we are running uh, effectively, to make sure we're above board, all those different things. Um, the checks and balances are in place. But, but hear me, that stuff should not ever be the focus of a church. It should not ever be the focus of, of the church. Our focus should be largely on the good news of the gospel. That's where we want to consistently stay focused. There's actually there's a word at the end of the book of Acts. The word is akalotos. Uh, it's the Greek word, and that Greek word actually means unhindered. Literally speaking, it means without hindrances. The very last verse of the book of Acts is that, that the apostles and the followers of Christ went out into the world proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and, and, and without hindrance. So as we look at the book of Acts, as we look at this series through the book of, uh, of Acts, it's about his word being unhindered as we follow him and we get the opportunity then to share it with people in our world. That's largely what it's about. We want to see God use our church both corporately as well as individually to radically change the culture and the belief system in Kings County. And the only way that happens is if his people are unhindered when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus. We want to live lives that are clearly on mission. We want to reflect Jesus. We want to reflect who Jesus is to a world that is dark and lost and, and searching for meaning. And, and we're walking through the book of Acts because the entire book is about what God can do. It's about what God can do. Right? So often we, we get into the mode of what it is that I can do in my own power to maybe help further the kingdom of God. Can I just tell you that this morning as we're kind of kicking off the year and all that stuff that let me take a load off your shoulders. It is not about you. The kingdom of God is simply that. It is about God and his kingdom. It's about him taking ordinary people and using them in extraordinary ways. If you're walking through your Bible reading plan, I know a lot of you guys just started, you're on your, like, your six-day streak now, right? Like you're crushing it, you're in like Genesis 18 or something like that. As you're, as you're reading through the Bible, even Old Testament, New Testament, wherever you're reading, the Bible is full of stories of God using people who aren't just ordinary, oftentimes they're broken, messed up, jacked up people. God uses those imperfect people in order to carry out his will in the world. And I don't believe that it's just, it's just confined to the Bible. I believe that is something that God is continuing to do here in 2024. So if you feel like you're just kind of an ordinary person, 
Like, I feel like I'm a kind of an ordinary person, or maybe you're pretty hard on yourself, and you're like, man, I'm less than an ordinary person. Congratulations. God is going to use you and can use you in extraordinary ways. And I think a lot of times, honestly, the church kind of forgets this, right? I think the church in America has two big issues that largely we need to overcome, or at the very least, we need to overcome at kind of the, the local level. Right, the first is, is that Christians are, are largely apathetic to what eternity actually means, Hear me on this, because I think oftentimes we just kind of forget when the Bible talks about eternity with Jesus, or the Bible talks about eternity in hell, I think we just kind of think like, oh yeah, eternity, that's that bonus life I get to live once my actual life is done with. And we, we, we get to a point where like, I've accepted Jesus, right? I admit, I believe, I choose. And so because of that, I don't really have to worry about anything anymore because once I'm done here, I get to go to heaven. I'm good. And that's kind of the way that we view eternity. It's not the case. Eternity is forever. And that forever is either with Jesus or without him. And I think we're kind of apathetic towards that once we've kind of checked our, checked our own box. The other issue I think that we have with the Western church is that we are afraid to share our faith with other people. I've taught a lot of different classes, different groups, different things like that. And oftentimes when we're talking about this idea of sharing your faith, and I ask the question, why is it that you don't share your faith? The main issue that consistently comes up is fear. I'm afraid to share my faith. Well, why are you afraid to share your faith? What if I don't know the right answers? Right? What if I make somebody else uncomfortable? Because we're good Christians, right? We don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. We never want to make anybody feel uncomfortable about their lives, their belief systems, or anything like that. And so fear just kind of just takes, takes us over. But the difficult thing is, is as I look at the book of Acts, I don't see the early church being apathetic about eternity. I definitely don't see them scared of their fellow man. And so to me, the Holy Spirit has some work to do on us because I want to make it difficult, and I hope, hopefully you want to make it difficult for people in Kings County to go to hell. So that's my hope for this year, that we would be unhindered in our desire to further the kingdom of God. There's a famous quote by a man named Jeff Christofferson. It would be on the screen, but Brian's not here because of that baby. It goes like this. He says, I'm going to give this kid a complex before he knows what that is. Um, Anyway, so follow along. I'll read it twice. But this is what the quote says. He says, few dreams are more spiritually intoxicating than the dream of being used by God to start a new community of Christ that skillfully brings the restorative gospel to a lost and broken city. I'll read it again slower. Few dreams are more spiritually intoxicating that the dream of being used by God to start a new community of Christ that skillfully brings the restorative gospel to a lost and broken city. So when Christofferson wrote this, he wrote this to people who were going to go plant a, a church in a place with zero gospel influence. So as you're going through seminary, not you, but as I was going through seminary, there's largely two types of pastors, okay? I mean, there's lots of different types of pastors, but they usually fit into one of two categories. One of the categories is is the category that I fall into. I believe in the local church. I believe in the history of the church. Uh, I believe that churches that are broken shouldn't be abandoned. I think they should be fixed. And so because of that, I find myself in a replanting pastor category, taking churches that are not completely healthy and doing my best to make them healthy which is why I'm here. 
There's other pastors, and both pastors are necessary. Hear me on that. There's other pastors who walk through seminary who largely are church planters. Church planters, they don't have to worry about history. They don't have to worry about anything like that. They want to go into communities that maybe, maybe aren't as saturated with the gospel, who maybe don't understand who Jesus is, and they want to go to those places and establish new community. Christofferson is writing this quote to the church planters where he says, few dreams are more spiritually intoxicating. That God wants to use the community of Christ that, that skillfully brings a restorative gospel to a lost and broken city. And I think that's great and I think that's good. But if we simply took this quote and applied it to where we are at at First Baptist Hanford, a church that has been around, by the way, for the last 131 years. Hey, we're not the new kid on the block anymore. Hey, we've been around the block once once or, t- once or twice. And our church that is established as a good and a healthy church in our community, a stable church is as I came in, that's the word that kept coming up. We are a stable church in the, in the community. And you take that church, a church with our resources, a church with our reputation, and you line it up with the mission of God. Then all of a sudden we're cooking with gas. Right, there are things that we can do to make God's name known, not just because of our reach, not just because of our resources, because of the fact that we have, man, we have been around forever and our reputation allows us to speak truth into our community. We have to remember that we live in cities that are lost and broken. And I want to see God use us to restore them. And that's one of the reasons that we're walking through the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts is, is largely about the birth of the church as, as we know it. And we need to recognize that, that it's a continuation of the gospel of Luke, same author in both. He wrote the book of Luke, wrote the book of Acts, and it largely records the Acts of the Apostles, which is how it got its name, Acts, the Acts of the um, Apostles. And it follows the Apostles as they are given the power of God's Spirit and tasked with spreading the good news of God's kingdom to the ancient world. So Acts is the first time we will see non-Jews come into the family and the body of Christ. It's a really exciting, awesome book. There's two books that I've always wanted to preach through verse by verse. First one, book of Acts. Second one, book of Romans, which would take like four years, and uh, I really want to, so who knows, 2025. Um, So... With all that, 2025 through 28, uh, all that being said, let's go to Acts chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to get through 11. It will be on the screen, but if you have your Bible, feel free to open it. If you got your phone, feel free to open that as well. We're reading from the NIV version. This is what it says. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen... After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for, my gift, my fa- wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, and then suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Lord, I pray that these words would just pierce our hearts this morning. That it wouldn't just be something that as we leave this place that we would feel good about. That we would just feel like encouraged for the week. God, I pray that these words would be ones that would pierce our heart and force us to act because of what you did on our behalf. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look back now at verses 1 through 3. We're going to go back and kind of, kind of chunk it up a little bit. Okay, so like I said, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke as his first letter, Acts of the Apostles as his follow-up. And both of these books are written, you saw, maybe you caught that in verse 1, written to, it seems to be a person named Theophilus. And don't get hung up on this because the reality is, is no one knows who or what Theophilus actually is. The way it's written in the context kind of seems like an individual. You're like, oh, there's a guy named Theophilus that he wrote these books to. Okay, but there's a lot of debate because the Bible never actually says who Theophilus is. It's just this naming of Theophilus. But the reality is the name Theophilus literally means loved by God but kind of carries the idea of being a friend of God. And so it kind of leads some people to believe that Theophilus is kind of a generic title to all people who call God their, Jesus their Lord and Savior. Okay, we don't know. The reality is and the truth of the situation is it doesn't really matter. Okay, because the truth of the book of Luke, the truth of the book of Acts still should permeate our hearts and allow us to act in a way that is becoming to, uh, to the text. So that being said, Luke is a physician. Okay, Luke, he's a, he's a historian. He joins Paul later on in the book of Acts. Luke lived and breathed life in and among Paul and all of the early, other early believers. Right? Luke was not one of Jesus' disciples. Okay? Hear me on that. Tell your kids that because when we ask who some of Jesus' disciples were, they say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're like, no. It is not some of them, but no, right? So Luke was not one of his disciples, but he was a part of those early believers. And so he talks about the fact that Jesus shares proofs with other with, like with his disciples. So what does that mean? Let's read it again, Acts 1. It says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. So what are the proofs of Jesus' resurrection that Luke is talking about. If we go back, we recognize that Jesus presented himself to the disciples, right? And as the disciples kind of retell this story, as you look at the end of each of the gospels, and they're like, oh, Jesus resurrected. It wasn't some like pale, limping, ashen person who had like fainted and barely survived a cross. It wasn't like Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, and then they put him in a cave for three days, and then he like rolled a big stone, and then like kind of limped out. That is not the Jesus that we see. We see a glorious 
king. We see the person who was scourged with whips was actually better than brand new. And hear me, he didn't appear just, just one time, but he appears over a period of, of 40 days. And, and Paul tells us is Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Many of those people Luke probably would have talked to. Jesus also gave proofs by eating with them. Right? Ghosts don't eat. Okay, So he ate with them. He let them touch his hands. He let them touch his side, right? Jesus' disciples were so convinced they saw him alive after their death that most of them died martyrs' deaths, and all of them suffered to tell others about Jesus. Right? Actually, the word uh, witness in verse 8 is the Greek word martis. It's where the word martyr comes from. Jesus gives us everything that we need. Be encouraged by this. Jesus gives us everything we need to be his martyrs in the world. Happy New Year. But this is one of the most convincing things, not just the proofs, one of the most convincing things about Jesus' death, burial, and specifically his resurrection, which all of Christendom hangs on, by the way. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, everything we do is for naught. So the, the most convincing proof is the fact that 11 guys said, I saw Jesus die and, and I saw him, at, like he was raised from the dead as a glorious king. And I saw him. And not just that they said it, but the fact that they all died for it or were persecuted, persecuted because of it. And not a single one of them recanted. I don't know about you, but I've never told a lie that I was so attached to that I was willing to die for it. That's, that would be the equivalent of what these guys were doing. So we have two options. Either assume that all of these disciples were really, really stubborn about their lying or assume that what they actually saw actually took place. Jesus gives us everything we need to be martyrs in this world just like his disciples. And so the question there, like, what could possibly cost me to give my life, even if I don't die? Even if it just means that every single day of my life, I live in such a way that I'm going to tell other people about Jesus... Like what would cause that? The only thing that could possibly make it worthwhile is if someone died and came back to life and told us how to have eternal life. And that's what Jesus says. And that's what Jesus did. So Jesus gives us everything that we need, including proofs, proofs of his resurrection to be witnesses in our world. But we all know that, that we can give the best reasons to follow Jesus. You can give as many proofs as you want to believe in Christianity. But in order for that belief to come, God has to do something in our hearts. And one of the, 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 it takes so long for information to get from our head down into our heart. You can even think something rationally makes sense. You could have agreed with everything I just said about the disciples and the lying and all those different things. And still your heart is hard to the idea of Jesus being the risen Savior. So Jesus still has, the Holy Spirit still has some work to do in our, in our hearts. But beyond that, Jesus, he actually gives us power for the mission that is ahead of us. Look at the absolute power Jesus has promised. Jesus promises to send his disciples as they wait in Jerusalem. It's verses 4 and 5. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, proof, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which is what you, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what's the gift? The Holy Spirit. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. So the power he is giving, hear me, is not about us. Going back to what we were talking about before. It is not about us. It's completely and totally about him. Has anybody ever taken a a spiritual gifts assessment? Spiritual gifts? Yeah, handful of you. Okay, a spiritual gifts assessment, and we do it during our growth track um, as a way of commercial towards my group that we'll be meeting starting this Wednesday. Um, But we do it during growth track, and we say, hey, fill out this spiritual gifts assessment. And there's all the different spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture on there. And, like, there's a sentence that says, like, are you organized? One through four. And the type A's are, like, writing five and circling five, right? And the type B's are, like, I didn't even read the question. I'm just going to make little uh, figurines out of the bubbles that I'm making, right? Um, and then there's, like, like, do you enjoy talking to people about Jesus? And do you enjoy uh, finding new truths about the Word of God? And you kind of rate yourself. And then at the end, you kind of tally up your scores, and then it's supposed to tell you what your spiritual gift is. And everybody loves it because, like, I am defining myself, right? Um, and I think it's a good tool. I think it's a helpful tool. Tool. I think realistically, spiritual gifts are more seen um, from through other believers to your life as they tell you what it is that your spiritual gift kind of is, how you feel empowered. But that's the reality of what a spiritual gift is. Power that is given to you, something that you could do over and over and over and over again and never get tired of it and love it. There's some people in here who could pray all day long, and I love that. There's some people in here who are like, I could organize a closet all day long, and I love that. You got the gift of administration. That's awesome. Congratulations. There's some people you can't, that they walk down the street and they can't bump into a stranger without talking to them about Jesus. And they have the gift of evangelism. And I love that. The problem, though, oftentimes is once we get our spiritual gifts assessment, we're like, this is me. This is not what the Holy Spirit is talking about. It's not the power that we're talking about here. It's not about us. It's about what the Holy Spirit is going to do in and through us. And so that's great. Have your spiritual gifts. I have my spiritual gifts. I use them. Use yours to the glory and the benefit of the building up of the church. That's what they're for. But that being said, your spiritual gift is not about you. The spiritual gift is about the kingdom of God and the power that the Holy Spirit gives you. And hear me, as long as we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not some mystical force that we can move with our minds if we pray hard enough, right? Like these these are not the Jedi you're looking for. And the Star Wars nerds got that. Um, That's not the case. The Holy Spirit is God himself. The third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as, as the Father is. He's just as much God as the Son is. And Jesus is promising to send the Holy Spirit to fill up the disciples and empower them for ministry. Here's the cool thing. If you know Jesus Christ, you've entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you have that power, you have that spirit currently living inside of you. And the awesome thing is is you can ask that Holy Spirit to not just reside in you, but to fill you up and empower you to reach out to maybe that one person that God has placed on your heart. Every single week before I start prepping, before I start working on my sermon, I spend time praying that the Holy Spirit would empower me to use the gifts that he has given me to do my best to shepherd our congregation. Before I walk out here every single Sunday after Jeff has done his announcements and I'm back there by myself before the band leaves and all that different stuff, every single week I pray, Holy Spirit, this has got to be you. It is not me. Let these be your words. Let me, do, let me do my best to lead these people into a deeper relationship with your, with your Father and with the Son. Please help me 
do that. And that's the power that we have. I listened to a, a podcast one time with an author uh, who wrote a book about the life and the faith of Mr. Rogers. Did anybody grow up with Mr. Rogers? Any Mr. Rogers people on here? I was a Mr. Rogers kid. Um, I don't know if I ever made it through a full episode without falling asleep, but I was a Mr. Uh, Mr. Rogers kid, and uh, f- his name was Fred. I'm going to call him Fred, even though we weren't on a first name basis. Um, Fred loved the Lord. And he actually went to seminary as he worked in television. And he actually became an ordained Presbyterian minister. And he integrated his faith and his work into everything that he did, which was actually really, really cool. So I just remember thinking, man, that that man is so kind. And he's so gentle. And he's so loving. And, like, I want him to be my grandpa, right? That's his faith at work as he's moving moving forward. But the cool thing about about Mr. Rogers uh, is that he was actually incredibly spirit-led man. It wasn't just opening the Bible and reading the Bible, though he did that as well. But there's lots of stories about Mr. Rogers calling people when something was going on in their life to check in on them or showing up in a time of trouble. When, when they weren't expecting him to, when no one told him anything, he was just like, I feel like I need to talk to this person. But the coolest story that they talked through, that there was a, a woman who worked on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood for several years with him. And her husband was diagnosed with cancer. And one morning, uh, she woke up um, really early in the morning, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and her husband had died during the night. And it was especially hard because she thought God was going to heal him. And so she's taking it really, really hard. It's really early in the morning. She's in this moment of crisis, and she just, she hears a knock on the door, and it's like 3 a.m. And it's Mr. Rogers. And he came in and he changed his shoes. No, I was just kidding. Um, <laughs> some of you thought he, he did. Um, but he came in and he said, he said, I want you to know that, that I was praying for you and I felt like you needed me to come over. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not going to knock on anybody's house at 3 a.m. But Mr. Rogers was willing to do that. He was there. He cried with her. He called the funeral home for her. And this one experience helped transform her life, right? Mr. Rogers believed the Holy Spirit was active in every human encounter. And between him and the audience watching his show, Mr. Rogers has had an incredible impact on a ton of people for the kingdom of God, which is also a sentence I never thought I would share from stage. But Jesus can fill us up with that same Holy Spirit that he filled up Mr. Rogers with. Jesus gives us power for our mission, his Holy Spirit, and Jesus gives an outward mission, which may be the most important thing for us to grasp uh, this morning. Acts 1.6, it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The disciples at this point, they're interested in building a kingdom, but, but they're more interested in building a kingdom that looked more like a political kingdom that was set up on earth. And so Jesus tells them, hey, stop worrying about this kingdom and start telling other people that the king has come. Don't worry about the building of that. The king is already here. He said to them in verses 7 and 8, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right, Jesus promises here that the Holy Spirit is going to come on them, which we'll see in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. We're not there yet. 
And that he's going to send them out on mission to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. And so as we read the book of Acts, we'll see the outward expansion of their witness from Jerusalem in Acts 1 through 7, to Judea and Samaria in Acts 8 through 12, and to the ends of the earth, which is Rome, in Acts 13 through 28. This is incredibly important. Because this is the first geographic plan for expansion for the early church. For moving the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the first time ever. But I think there's something in this for us this morning. Just because something is recorded in Acts doesn't mean it's a set pattern. right? Acts is oftentimes stories and just recording what happened. But just because it's a set pattern doesn't mean the Bible doesn't communicate theology through history. And we find the pattern for our outward mission, how it is that we're supposed to share our faith with other people. So how so? Well, let's break it down. If you look at Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's the, it's the political, economic, cultural hub of the entire nation. It's where God had placed the gathering of his disciples for the moment. God has placed us as a church in Hanford. I know that some of you are like, well, I'm from Lemoore, I'm from Selma, I'm from Kingsbury, whatever, that's great. But for us as a church, Jerusalem for us is Hanford because that is where he has placed our church. And hear me, God has called us to minister to our towns, not to the exclusion of the town that, that each of us may live, but the mission starts here. And then Jesus quickly expands his mission as you're, about to see, as you're about to see. Because then he says, also Judea. Disciples, they're, they're not from Judea. They're actually from Galilee, which is like northern cousin of Judea. They're, they're pretty close. But when I hear Judea, I think of a specific geographic region in Israel, but also the hometowns of most of the disciples at that point, the places that they knew best. And so if you've been coming to our church for a long period of time, you know that as I'm kind of describing this, you're like, that kind of sounds maybe a little bit like, like, like my oikos. Oikos, for those of you who are new, it's simply a Greek word that means household. It's found all over the New Testament. And this is the main way that the gospel was expanded from person to person. And so what we would say is your oikos consists of 8 to 15 people who God has both supernaturally and strategically placed in your life for you to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Meaning, you already know them. You know them best. The disciples knew Judea. This is where they grow up. These are the people that they interact with. These are their, their co-workers and their bosses and their families. These are their soccer coaches and their baseball teammates and their kids' teachers. And all these, like, these are the people that, that they know. It's your front line the place where you live and work and spend most of your time around people who probably don't know who Jesus is or maybe they know who Jesus is and have fallen away. That's your Judea. But then we get to the next one, which is Samaria. Samaria is actually an interesting one. If you're familiar with kind of the Jewish perce perception of, of Samaritans in the New Testament, at the time, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. The people of Judea actually really didn't like the people in Samaria. They looked at them like they would look at like other pagans. Or even worse, as Samaria once abandoned the one true God of Israel altogether. All actually, at one point in Jesus' ministry, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, tried to call fire down from heaven on a Samaritan village. 
Jesus' disciples were like, hey, let's call fire down from heaven on that Samaritan village. That's how much they disliked Samaria. But Jesus rebukes them. Don't worry. It's in Luke 9, 52 and 54. In Acts 1.8, God calls his disciples, including James and John, to go to Samaria with the gospel message. Who do you feel most different around? Who's your Samaria? Right? Maybe it's a, a group of people that hold a different political opinion or ideology about life than you do. Which, congratulations, it's an election year. We get to walk through that together again. Or, or maybe it's just someone who doesn't have your best interest at heart. Or maybe it, maybe it doesn't even have to be negative. It might just be someone you're unfamiliar with or you don't live close to, so you don't really know them. Jesus calls us, Jesus calls us to people like these. And maybe not every single person, but to our Samaria, wherever that may be. That we are called to that expansion. And then he ends with the ends of the earth. We do a pretty decent job with international missions. A portion of all of our tithes and offerings goes to international missions. And Paul says, hey, go, or go to the end of the earth. The book of Acts ends with Paul making it to Rome. He gets beheaded once he gets there, but he does make it to Rome. But the mission doesn't stop there. We are called to go and serve in places that need Christ and haven't heard him yet. We have people who were from our congregation who are now serving in international missions. That's awesome. That's absolutely incredible. And I'm not saying all of you are called to go. Please don't all of you go. As a matter of fact, it would be lonely next week, okay? But most of like every single one of us has to have a hand in missions. John, one of John Piper's favorite quotes, my, one of my favorite quotes of John Piper, he simply says this in regards to missions. He says, go, send, or disobey. You can either go, serve in international missions. You can send them whether it's with, with money or, or resources or whatever, or you can disobey the command that the, God, that the book of Acts has for you, which is bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the text ends with motivation to go. Right? We see Jesus ascending into heaven and all the disciples standing there waiting for Jesus to return. And so two angels come back and they send them uh, to Jerusalem because Jesus, they're like, hey, Jesus is coming back. This is what it says in verse 9 through 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've sent him go, or you've seen him go into heaven. The disciples are sitting there with their hands in their pockets. They're like, man, Jesus is floating real high. You think, when do you think he's going to come down? They're just sitting there, sitting there so long that God has to send angels in. It's like, hey, angels, can you go, can, angels tell them what they're supposed to do. Because they're sitting there waiting for Jesus to come back. And Jesus, like, he's coming back and the disciples hadn't even started on the mission yet. I don't want to get to the end of my tenure here, whenever that's going to be, hopefully a long, long time from now, and still be standing here looking in the sky. And think, man, I hope Jesus comes back soon. When I'm surrounded by a world that needs the hope of Christ, that you are surrounded by people who need the hope of Christ, 
I want to get moving. I want to have something worth celebrating. I want to tell other people about the resurrection of Jesus and see what the Holy Spirit does in and through me, right? Jesus gives me everything I need to be his witness in our world. Jesus gives you everything you need to be his witness in our world. Church, can you, just, can you imagine what it would look like if our church was simply waiting expectantly as we moved our feet and our lives and we were actively communicating the good news of the gospel. And as we start out 2024, I just want to be laser focused on our desire to grow the kingdom, both in width and in depth. And I always say depth because I know there's people who are like, what about discipleship? I'm saying, I, be a disciple. Grow deeper in your faith. But let me remind you, the disciples make disciples. And if you're already a disciple of Jesus, you cannot, in good faith, shirk the responsibility of evangelism to somebody else because it's not your spiritual gift. All of us are called to expand the kingdom of God. And so this morning, we're going to take a second and think about that. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. But I think the majority of us in the room, and actually I'll say this, we're starting communion. This is a terrible segue. If you didn't get communion elements, raise your hand. Some people will come by and get you your communion elements. But stay with me here. Because the reality of the situation is, is that, that, that all of us have sin in our lives. Whether you have never placed your faith in Christ before or you've placed your faith in Christ and you've been doing your best to walk with him for the last 50 years, I guarantee you sinned. You have sinned since the last time you repented of that sin. So that being said, in just a minute, the band is going to come out. Um, I'm going to pray. The ABCs is what we call them. And, and, and we're going to receive communion together after we're done praying. But that being said, I just want you to think about what is it that is stopping you from helping expand the kingdom of God. Because apathy and fear aren't options. What is it that is stopping you from expanding the kingdom of God. Why don't you bow your heads as we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. And God, thank you for, for your spirit. And thank you for what you did in the early church. And God, I pray that there would be a fire like that for each and every one of us today. That we couldn't help but contain, or we couldn't help but, but, but spread your gospel. Couldn't help but spread your word to the very ends of the earth. That we were so impacted, so radically impacted by your son and what he did for us on the cross. That we couldn't help but share. I pray that for us as a congregation and for those of you in the room with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you have never said yes to God and you feel like you're far from him, you feel like, man, maybe this is the time where I just need to make that confession of faith that you want to receive communion with us for the first time as a believer, as the Bible dictates we should. If that's you this morning, you can simply pray in the quietness of your heart, the ABCs, you pray right after me, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And I repent of that behavior because of the sacrifice that he made. I repent of my sins. 
I want to follow you, not the way of this world. And C, I would just choose to follow you and not the pattern of this world, God. And for those of us in here with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, who maybe just feel like you're kind of distant from God and you need to re-up. Say 2024 is the year where I get serious about my faith. If that's you, allow the Spirit to work on your heart. Ask to receive the power of the Spirit. And allow Him to move and work. We love you, Father. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.